In this episode of Paid by the Word, Mike interviews novelist Ellen Horan. Ellen is the author of 31 Bond Street, a historical novel about a lurid murder that took place in New York City a short time before the Civil War. Here's a snippet from their conversation in which Ellen talks about one of her techniques for developing truly believable characters. There's a phrase that's something that I use when I'm talking about or, or, or teaching fiction, but it's, it's a phrase about developing character. And the phrase is um, taking your character for a walk. And what I mean by that is literally taking your character outside and walking around as them. And for instance, you know, when you, you watch New Yorkers on the street, everyone is having their own inner conversation. It's what we do. It's how we have a ton of inner chatter going on inside our brain at all time, at all times. And it's unique. It's unique to our rhythm. It's unique to our voice. So the idea is that you find that inner voice of your character by taking them outside and walking as if you were them. Well, hello there, and welcome to Paid by the Word, a podcast featuring conversations with professional writers and editors. If you are curious about what goes on in the minds of people who write and edit for a living, this podcast is for you. Ellen Horan is the author of 31 Bond Street, a historical novel published by HarperCollins. Set against the backdrop of bustling, corrupt New York City four years before the Civil War, the book recounts the tale of a murdered doctor, a mysterious woman who may or may not have killed him, and the political forces at work in the city in the late 1850s. I genuinely enjoyed Ellen's novel, and I found her descriptions of old New York absolutely fascinating. Ellen has worked as a studio artist and as a photo editor for magazines such as Vanity Fair, Vogue, House and Garden, Forbes, and Art News. She is a visual editor on illustrated books about fashion, design, and family history. Ellen currently lives in Brooklyn, and I'm delighted that she took the time to chat with me. One of the interesting stories she told me about the book is its origin story. It all began in a print shop where she saw an old newspaper page. On the page was an etching that caught her interest. Soon, her curiosity became a passion as she strove to learn more about the story behind the etching. Ellen's investigation and her research led her to write 31 Bond Street, and the rest, as they say, is history. I began our conversation by asking Ellen if she had enjoyed the process of researching a historical novel based on a real murder, the grisly slaying of Dr. Burdell and the subsequent trial of his alleged killer. Well, it was very enjoyable doing the research. Um, I took a lot of time at it, but at the time I had really no idea where this, anything about this and where this newspaper etching would take me. So um, I went up to the New York Public Library and in those days, the newspaper archives were still on microfiche and you had to find a little box in a drawer and go to this file cabinet and look it up and then spool it up on a machine. So what I discovered that first day was that this story was on the front page continuously for the next eight months and that it was a huge sensation. And it was covered by all the newspapers, um, the New York Times, the New York Post, the Daily News, the New York Herald, the New York Tribune. They were all in these drawers and I could eventually go through all of them. It was kind of like imagining that 100 years from now that our cultural memory 
had been erased of the story of O.J. Simpson, you know, and let's say you had stumbled upon a news clip of it and looked it up. And then that was sort of the equivalent of the treasure trove that I found of this coverage of Dr. Burdell's murder. So I would put money into the machine, which allowed you to photocopy the microfiche. And I'd take a stack with me and avidly read it on the bus ride downtown Fifth Avenue. I did that over a period of maybe months. The actual events and the murder of Dr. Burdell occurred near where you were living at the time. The story took place in the village where I lived, so it was very intriguing for me because the reading of the newspaper articles really immersed me into the city where I lived and that I knew, but as it was 150 years earlier. Basically, as I continued, I made a point to use primary sources only rather than look up later summaries, of which there really weren't that many at the time. So I didn't want to know what happened except through the newspapers. Um, so initially, knowing nothing, uh, I basically learned about it the same way that I would have as if I had lived then. And I had to learn about it, you know, at breakfast with my morning paper day by day. So it also allowed me to focus very specifically on one year, which was 1857, and what was happening month to month or in a particular decade. But this was really about a very specific year. Um, and as you read the paper, you find that there's so much else in there. They're, they're filled with, you know, the fads, the entertainments, you know, women were wearing hoop skirts and dandies, men were dandies, there were minstrel bands. It was very clear that New York City was in the middle of a economic boom and a cultural boom. And there was a crash at the end of that year, but nobody knew that was coming. Um, the other thing that they didn't know was coming was the Civil War. Um, and I was particularly engrossed by stories about the South where there was growing turbulence and especially violence, lynchings. Um, and I don't think that the war was in the common person's viewfinder, but the seeds were definitely there. And, you know, with hindsight, we've read the historians that look back and talk about the various things. There was the Dred Scott decision in 1857. There were certain annexations of lands in the West that were pro-slavery, anti-slavery. Um, but I don't think the average person could have imagined that in just three years that the country would have been plunged into this crisis. So in the book, I tried to include that looming war as the backstory um, to what was going on alongside the murder and the trial. One of the things that I really liked about the book is the is that you have a really diverse cast of characters, um, you know, and the fact that you that that parts of Manhattan, lower Manhattan, still seem very uh, rustic and and not urban at all. Was that a kind of a delight to uh, to plunge around in that area? Absolutely. One of the things I did was I looked at maps. Um, because you can't really get a photographic record that early um, because of the technology wasn't as well developed. But in any case, the maps would actually show you these large undeveloped areas that, you know, a lot of Manhattan was, was farmland or rubble or scrub brush and was slowly being developed and anticipated to be developed. But, you know, it was kind of amazing to imagine that, you know, there were these wild areas um, in the city in terms of genre, this is historical fiction. Is that what it's called? Or yes, you know, historical fiction turns out to be anything that takes place in the past. <laughs> sometimes, so it just depends. The more in the past, the more it's historical fiction. So it's just it's a it's a tag that goes onto books as long as well as 
other, you know, it could be a mixture of genres. Cool. So, Ellen, how did you become the writer and author that you are today? Well, I first published this book, which is my first book, when I was in my 50s. So being a novelist is a late life career path. Um, Getting there here was a very winding path. And as a child, I was a very big reader and writer as a youngster in school. So, and then I went to an alternative high school where we could make our own curriculum. And I took advantage of that by taking courses where I could read novels all day. So I devoured a huge amount of literature reading American, English, Russian classics. And then I went to college to Hamilton, where you also went, Mike, but we weren't there at the same time. But um, I always assumed that I would be a literature major. And when I looked at the curriculum, it suddenly occurred to me that I had spent too much time already reading books. Um, So I wanted to sort of broaden my experience. And I veered away from the English department altogether. And I concentrated on fine arts and ended up majoring in painting and history, intellectual history. So... After college, I had a grant to live and paint in the south of France, and I lived there in France for a total of two years. So it was a very amazing experience, but I guess you could say that it was a postponement of any career path. Um, I returned to New York, still in my early 20s, but my college roommate's mother gave me a job, which was an incredibly fortunate stroke of luck because I very much needed money, and also because it was at Magnum Photos, which is... um, one of the premier photojournalistic agent, photo agencies, and I was surrounded by these great photojournalists, and I eventually learned photo editing skills. So I later freelanced for many years, worked as a photo editor at magazines. I, I worked at Condé Nast and Hearst, and at those magazines, I worked alongside the writers, the journalists, and the editors. Our job as the photo editor was to create, to work with them and create a visual narrative around their stories. I was exposed, you know, to writers all the time. But the one thing I realized is that I never would have been a good journalist. Um, I still think that today. I think it's, I I so admire the skill. I think it's a very different set of skills than fiction. And I would have trouble with that format and also as short form, as a short form writer. So it was decades later, you know, Um, that I had the notion that maybe I would try to write fiction. And I think so many people, you know, that I encounter sort of wonder, you know, they have that idea, oh, I have the story and they're musing about it. And they think, you know, I could turn that into a book. And that's what I did. I was riding my bike and it was the summer. And I noticed this collapsed house in the middle of a farm field. And I started to concoct a story in my head. You know, the whole arc just came to me, half an hour bike ride. And I thought, oh, I could write a novel. And so then I remember thinking, but maybe I need a murder. Um, and the funny thing is that the ne- it was the next week that I went into that bookshop, and fa- the print shop, and found the etching. And I took one look at it, and I thought, here's my murder. Now, the other thing is that in your bike ride, you can sort of concoct a, an entire book in a half an hour, but it really took me years. So that's how I got to the novel. Wow, that's that's a great story, Ellen. 
For for what it's worth, uh, I think it's uh, it's easier being a journalist than it is being a novelist. Um, the uh, the main difference is that it's a little more physically demanding being a journalist because uh, you're out and about and uh, you know you're you're subject to the elements and you're also you know writing stories at three o'clock in the morning. But I admire uh, novelists uh, because they can spin great stories from their imaginations, whereas journalists, at least theoretically, we're supposed to be relying only on facts. I just want to interject quickly that I I admire journalists and I and I do think it's a set of skills that nonfiction is I think a very valuable form and I originally tried to write my book as a nonfiction narrative, which is, you know, a particular sort of breed of um, nonfiction. And there's some great writers that do that. Um, you know, I, I've also been encouraged by agents to, you know, write your nonfiction narrative book and to have done a book about that book in a very valid historical and journalistic format. To me, um, it was just not my, my bent. And I really do admire people that can do that or more short form journalism. So we're at odds here. We're, we're admiring each other's skills. <laughs> I'll take that. <laughs> you know, we can't have it all, but you know, maybe we can, some people can do, do jump around, but in any case, um, as far as my inspirations, um, I do like to read a lot of nonfiction, um, as it comes up, you know, um, uh, I love David McCullough types of books and, um, I do read fiction. There's so much out there right now in terms of contemporary fiction and such a diversity of voices. And I dip into it as, as much as I can. Um, I find that reading too much also distracts me from writing. But um, there are great book lists on the Center for Fiction Brooklyn, um, Greenlight Bookstore, which really you know sh- showcase the very con- the contemporary writers that are coming up. But if I were to identify a seminal inspiration for my fiction for liter- for literary fiction is it's Fitzgerald. Um, my father gave me the great Gatsby when I was about 12 and told me that it's something that he loved when he was young. And Fitzgerald is such a master of the moment, you know, whether it's fad or fashion or the vanity of his era, you know, historical fiction is always trying to capture that from its era. And when you look back at him now, he's the perfect, you know, historical fiction writer of the twenties, but you know, it was obviously, it was his contemporary uh, era. And yet what good fiction does is capture what it feels like to be in the contemporary world. So the other thing he does is um, there's a rhythm, there's a cadence to his sentences that I refer back to all the time. I just think that they're, so rich um, and original. He's got original adjectives for everything. And so I love to go back and really sort of roll around in the rhythm of his prose. And I know all sorts of passages by heart, but I wrote this one down because it's one of my favorites. Um, It's Nick, who is at Daisy's house for the first time. And um, it goes... The lawn started at the beach and ran toward the front door for a quarter of a mile, jumping over sundials and brick walls and burning gardens. Finally, when it reached the house, drifting up the side in bright vines as though from the momentum of its run. And I just find that so stunning because he captures so much, you know, it's a lawn in motion, just rushing up the the hill and smashing into the house. And you have this sort of the awe that he's he's feeling as he's standing there looking at this beautiful landscape 
Oh, that's it's amazing. I'm so glad that you that you brought that up because you know uh, when I think of first of all, I agree with you completely. Gatsby is the touchstone book for American writers. Uh, I, I think that at any rate. So I'm I'm glad you brought that up. And then also there's this uh, when you know when I when we think of Gatsby, we tend to you know focus on elements of the plot or or moments uh, with Myrtle and Tom. You know, strange things like that. Uh, but but yes, it's also got the best description of a lawn in any in any American book. So, and you're right; it's just so um, you know, it's a short book, and it's just got every every page has got some little gorgeous moment uh, like that. So, thank you so much for you. See, I think one of the things if if someone asked me, well, how can you know what is the secret of being a good writer? I would say be a good reader, and certainly you know. The ability to to spot and to and to remember moments like that in a good book are that's that's key. So, uh, Ellen, what brings you the greatest joy as a writer? Um, well, I would say it's getting characters up and running and finding their inner voices, those actual voices that are inside their heads. Um, and there's a phrase that's something that I use when I'm talking about or. or teaching fiction but it's it's a phrase about developing character and the phrase is um, taking your character for a walk and what I mean by that is literally taking your character outside and walking around as them and for instance you know when you you watch New Yorkers on the street um, this is sort of before the era of airbuds but everyone is having their own inner conversation it's what we do it's how we have a ton of inner chatter going on inside our brain at all time at all times and it's unique it's unique to our rhythm it's unique to our voice so the idea is that you find that inner voice of your character by taking them outside and walking as if you were them and as an example i was having trouble with the character of the main lawyer who is the protagonist and his name is henry clinton um he's the one who took on the defense of emma cunningham and as I was writing him, he was very stiff. He was very much of a pontificator. He was talking head. He was always sitting at desks and t telling, talking about strategy. So one day I was walking down 10th Street, where I lived at the time, pondering this problem. And this phrase popped into my head out of the blue. And it was, New York is a walking town, and walking gave me time to think. And it was him. He was talking to me. So I signed that to Henry Clinton. And... As I realized, you know, he sort of came alive and as a more active character. And when, on that walk, I reached Grace Church, which was the actual place where the funeral of Dr. Burdell took place. And I suddenly saw a whole scene come to life where Henry Clinton had to come up with his own inner reasons for taking on this very sensational but problematic case. So the other joy is when you fall in love with your character, um, which I eventually did with Henry Clinton. And um, when I first met my agent, I was telling her like this about developing characters. And I said, I learned that it's possible to fall in love with a 19th century man. <laughs> That's uh, that again, I, I feel as though that is the, uh, the sign, uh, the hallmark of a great writer is that uh, you fall in love with your characters uh, because you breathe life into them. And when you were, and, and, and of course, you know, you, you share a mental process with Henry and it's almost as though you share some, 
you know, uh, some sort of uh, metaphorical DNA. And that's, uh, that's uh, certainly one of the great joys and of writing. And that's something that writers uh, experience. I'm, I feel like we're, you know, we're blessed uh, because we can create characters that that we fall in love with. I think that's that's absolutely wonderful. Uh, so speaking of uh, falling in love with characters, would you please read a brief passage from your book? John carried the tray out of the kitchen with the china teapot tilting and wobbling, balancing it carefully. He climbed up the narrow kitchen stairway to the front hall, passing the double parlor ornamented with twin mantles and a high ceiling ringed with stucco designs like watchful angels. A tall clock in the hall rang eight times. Out the large window at the curve in the main staircase, the branches of the trees in the back garden scratched against the glass. On the second floor, John placed the tray on the carpet in front of Dr. Burdell's office, which was next to his bedroom. He pressed his ear to the door to hear if he was awake. Then he spotted something curious. A key was dangling from the keyhole about to topple onto the floor. It was odd because Dr. Burdell an intensely private man, always locked his door at night from the inside. John wondered if perhaps he had risen early and left the house before breakfast. Hearing nothing, John turned the knob. The door cracked open and scraped along the carpet a few inches until it jammed against a heavy object. He pushed it harder until the door burst open. Inside, Dr. Burdell was sprawled on the center of the floor, his arms outstretched, and his head in a sticky puddle that had hardened like tar. His lips were pendant and blue. His throat was slashed with a wound so deep that it nearly detached the head from the torso, revealing a sinewy tangle of muscle and tiny pearls of spine. The doctor's eyes stared up at John, glazed, sunken into the temples. His tongue was protruding, swollen, as if choked on a last silent scream. John ran into the hall stairway and leaned over the banister. The doctor, the doctor, Hannah, come quickly. Hannah's head emerged, bobbing from below. What are you yelling about, boy? He's in there, I seen him, John cries. Seen what, pray tell? The doctor, he's on the floor, he's dead. Don't you go telling tales, boy. Are you playing me for a fool? I'm not telling a lie. There's blood on the floor and all over the walls and his neck is cut. In her flowered apron, she huffed up the staircase, her gray hair flying from her cap. Hannah reached the doorway and peered in. Oh my God, oh my God, she screamed, putting her apron to her face. Emma Cunningham, hearing the noise, rushed from the third floor with Augusta and Helen behind her. Hannah, what is the commotion? The master is dead, cried Hannah. That's impossible, Emma said, pushing Hannah aside, craning her neck to peer into the office, her voice trailing. I just saw him yesterday before supper. She turned away, clasping her hands to her breast. It's a carnage, wailed Hannah, a bloody murder. Augusta looked inside and then dropped to the floor in a faint. Mrs. Cunningham grabbed Helen to keep her away from the gruesome sight, and the younger girl started to cry. John stood next to the pile of women, his eyes welling with tears. What are you standing there for, you foolish creature, screamed Hannah. Run down to the street and fetch the doctor that lives next door. Then go to the precinct house and look for an officer. She hit him on the side of the head as if spurring a horse. John turned and rushed down the stairs two at a time. In the vestibule, he pulled the bolts on the heavy front door and jumped down the stoop. The street was misty and the rain had turned to snow. He paused and looked back at the house. For a moment, he had the sensation that he had lost direction, not knowing which way to turn. Then he ran toward Broadway, his boyish figure bundled in scratchy gray woolens dissolving in the dim snowy light. Very nice. Wow. Thank you, Ellen. So this is um, this has just been such a pleasure. And I look forward to uh, to reading whatever it is that you write next. And I look forward to our next conversation. This idea of the, uh, you know, the kind of 
that borderline between fiction and nonfiction, uh, between images and the written word, all this is so fascinating. And it's just such an important part of our human, uh, our collective human experience. I'm happy that uh, I'm happy that we're still writing and reading books. And, uh, you know, and as my mom says, may it continue. (laughs) (laughs) Well, thank you, Mike. It's been a pleasure. And yes, I would love to talk to you more. That was my conversation with Ellen Haran, the author of 31 Bond Street, an historical novel based on a real murder that captivated New Yorkers a short time before the Civil War. I love how Ellen mentions the idea of taking your characters for a walk. That is wonderful advice, and I plan to follow Ellen's advice when I'm writing my next book. That wraps up another episode of Paid by the Word, a podcast featuring conversations with writers, editors, and media professionals. We are grateful for your attention and we wish you all the very best. Stay safe and be well. Bye-bye.